Welcome to Cognation. I'm your host, Rolf Nelson. And I'm Joe Hardy. On today's episode, we speak with Professor Josh Ackerman from the University of Michigan about the behavioral immune system, which is the set of behaviors and cognitions that we engage in when we perceive to be under threat by a disease. Uh, and I think this is a particularly relevant conversation, given that we're in the early stages of the COVID-19 pandemic. Yeah, we, th- we hope that this is uh, helpful for you, and uh, we'd love your feedback, uh, and enjoy the show. All right, welcome to Cognation. Joining us today is Professor Joshua Ackerman, who's an Associate Professor of Psychology and an Associate Professor of Marketing at the University of Michigan. Uh, Josh studies social psychology, threat perception, evolutionary psychology, and especially relevant to uh, things that are going on in the world today, he studies the behavioral immune system. So how it is that we respond to uh, threats, uh, immune threats in a behavioral way. Josh, uh, thanks a lot for joining us here today and uh, thinking about what's going on uh, behaviorally during this COVID-19 outbreak. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, I think it will be a very topical discussion. Yeah, so a lot going on in the world today. So how are things at uh, Michigan right now? So in Rhode Island, um, you know, it's all weird everywhere, I think. This is this is a very strange time. Um, you know, we've been staying at home. We're in day eight of quarantine, and um, we don't have a good sense of what's going on in other parts of the country. So how, how does it feel in Michigan? Uh, probably about the same as it is everywhere. Um, lots of confusion, lots of uh, solitude, I guess. Um, it's, uh, like you said, it's a really odd time, uh, to be living in. So we, um, in, in, uh, Ann Arbor anyway, we have got to the point where we've shut down all of the restaurants and bars and so forth, except for takeout and delivery. So I think we're all waiting for the next impending shift towards the sort of mandatory um, uh, home isolation kind of uh, process that's happening in some of the other states. I I guess everybody is switching to online courses. We're we're still finishing up spring break, so I'll be starting teaching online courses soon. Uh, Have you started doing that? Yeah, uh, the whole university has switched to online courses. Um, pretty much everything, uh, except for maybe some essential um, processes are shut down. So research is shut down, classes are online. It's been uh, really interesting uh, learning about all the, all the tools, I guess, that are um, available to teach online. But it's, it's definitely been a learning as you go kind of process, both for, I think, all of the instructors and for the students who are, at this point, actually probably spread um, around the world, actually. Right. Yeah. And in California here, um, I'm in El Cerrito, California, which is close to Berkeley. And the Bay Area was one of the first areas in the country to really institute what was first called a shelter in place. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, I, I, I don't know if it was necessarily, a, what do you call it? A mandate, but it was a shelter in place order, I guess. And now they're rebranding it. We're calling it uh, a stay-at-home, a stay-at-home order, which is now statewide throughout California. And 
so right so everyone's going just only out to get takeout or go to the grocery store but also people going for walks so a lot of people going for walks in the neighborhood um, more people walking i think than uh, i've ever seen before so that's kind of interesting yeah i'm seeing the same thing here there's uh it's an amazing number of people actually outside um which is is both sort of very interesting to see, but also um, almost feels as though you're in a in a slightly crowded environment if you're just walking down the sidewalk. Right. No, I, I get that too. I mean, even at the park, I'm sort of like, uh, <laughs> you know, we're a little close here, guys. Right. And there's this awareness, there's this general awareness that people shouldn't be within six feet of each other. So there's kind of, uh, you know, you're looking at people and judging, oh, wait, are they too close? Yes, if only um, everyone had really internalized that message. Uh, I'm not so sure that's the case. <laughs> yeah, right. I think um, at this point, it's it's yeah, it seems to be that some people are hyper aware and some people are certainly less aware, and it's it takes a while for that idea to spread across the population. I mean, so, I mean, this leads directly into your area of research. So, so you talk about what's called the behavioral immune system. Uh, so, what is the behavioral immune system? Yeah, the behavioral immune system is sort of, uh, it's, it's, it's an idea, um, and it's an idea that links together uh, a number of different uh, aspects of psychology that revolve around this idea of how people manage the danger, the risks, the threat of um, infectious disease. And so it's, in a sense, the, the idea is an analog to the physiological immune system. So, you know, we have these really complex set of internal processes that are um, evolved to manage the various agents that infect our body. Uh, but the sort of risk and the downside that comes along with those, uh, that internal system is that it by and large requires people to become infected in the first place, right? So the agents have to enter the body before the body can respond. So the idea of the behavioral immune system is that um, there are these various kinds of thoughts and emotions and behaviors that all work together to um, essentially downregulate the risk of that initial infection. So preventing people from uh, becoming infected in the first place. So all sorts of uh, different kinds of responses that are biased to essentially keep people uh, away from features of other people and features of environments that have historically been linked to um, or resemble uh, cues to infectious disease. So we're getting an idea of how um, such a system might be triggered. Um, have you noticed anything in, I guess, in the way that people are responding to COVID-19 that fits with uh, the literature in how uh, in what you might have expected? Yeah, I think to a certain degree. I mean, I think we're in kind of a very unique time. I mean, it's certainly been the case that uh, people have faced uh, epidemics before, but the sort of range of, of like epidemics and pandemics, the sort of the, the amount of people involved is still a relatively, I think, modern phenomenon. By modern, I mean probably since people have started really grouping together in large numbers since the agricultural revolution. So we have this, sort of the behavioral immune system is much older. So the, the idea is that uh, infectious disease has been one of these 
real dangers for humans across their history. In fact, some people say it's the biggest killer of humans in, in our uh, species history. And so people have all these ways of thinking about and responding to these cues of others um, and environments that are uh, in, involve disease. But when it comes to epidemics that are these really widespread um, and uncertain kinds of situations, then sometimes you're gonna, I think, see uh, responses that fit this kind of uh, behavioral immune system idea. And other times they, it's sort of more like haywire responses. So I think in terms of what I've seen so far, I mean, the big, the common one is just avoidance, right? So people are anxious, they're fearful. Um, so far, I don't know that we've seen, at least in the U.S., enough um, individual situations where people might also respond with emotions like disgust. But, um, but that is a common one associated with these responses. But it's just generally that people are becoming much more avoidant of others, of situations where people might have um, interacted with things before. So, you know, wariness about touching surfaces and so forth. And there's even been, I think, um, I'm not sure I'm seeing as much of it anymore, but during the initial stages of the uh, of the outbreak in the U.S. anyway, there was this heightened sense, at least there was these news reports of increased uh, prejudice, uh, prejudicial responses towards groups associated with the threat. So increased um, stereotyping and prejudice towards uh, Asian Americans and, and uh, Asians from other countries. And that idea fits with a lot of the literature in the behavioral immune system world, which suggests that people become very wary about people who aren't like them. So it's sort of like you're closing ranks, you're trying to you're trying to seal off any external forces that you can and uh, stick with your in-group and and push away any outgroups that might be invaders sort of as though the d- disease is invading you. Exactly. I mean there's a couple of things that happen so people build construct these uh, stronger walls between groups but they also become uh, much more sensitive to not just what the other group is doing, but what people in their own group are doing. So um, there's a reasonable amount of evidence, I think, that uh, people who are really concerned about disease um, become very aware of and they tend to track social norm behavior within their group. So they pay a lot of attention to people who are violating social norms and they uh, show increased desire to punish those people. And the basic idea is, right, so if you are in a group that is functioning you know, well enough, then anybody who's doing something different might be putting that group at risk, right? So it might be doing some sort of behavior that could lead to uh, infection spreading within the group. So you need to pay a lot of attention to what people are doing. So you're trying to decrease risk for other members of your group? Is that yeah, I mean, it's uh, you're decreasing risk. It's effectively decreasing risk for yourself, but by proxy, you're doing that for other members of your group as well, right? So if if we're reliant on other people, then what other people are doing really matters for us. And so, right, any of these behaviors is really designed to decrease risk, which doesn't mean that it's always going to have that actual outcome. So people um, have a really difficult time tracking who's actually infected or where the risk really uh, resides. I mean, these pathogens that people are trying to manage are invisible, essentially. And so uh, the kinds of responses people have show a large degree of bias um, and less so accuracy. From an evolutionary perspective, like you say, if this if this kind of suite of responses came from um, a time in which we're 
you know, we're seeing, you know, no more than a hundred or so individuals during your entire life, then how is it that we can take in information about, you know, the kind of society that we live in right now with you know, hundreds of millions of people, um, giving us input into how we should be behaving. We're getting less personal direct information. So how does this affect the way that a behavioral immune system might work or how it might misfire sometimes? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. Um, I think that we're still in the process of trying to understand that. I mean, where people are getting these these pieces of information from um, from others that might represent what's going on in their local community, but often it's really relevant to other parts of the country, other parts of the world. And so uh, I think an open question is whether people are treating those pieces of information as though they're actually relevant to their local community, even though they might um, not represent what's going on uh, around them. So I think that uh, in this particular case of these kinds of epidemics, where we're still, at least in the U.S., uh, we're still sort of in the phase of danger awareness without seeing the actual in-person effects of that danger. So although the number of cases is really increasing, most people don't know anybody who's, who is at least showing uh, symptoms of infection. And so they're not getting those really salient cues to infection. I think once that um, becomes more common, we're going to see many more behaviors that are more characteristic of the sort of classic research in, in behavioral immune system work. Um, but right now, people are, I think, really responding with, uh, with fear and anxiety. And I think a lot of that just comes uh, from the idea that, I mean, we're, we're essentially trained to um, understand that infection threats can't exist. Uh, and so we're told that those, uh, how those work. So we have a sort of a, a, some knowledge about the process of how infection works and how pathogens spread. And so we learned that, you know, across our lifespan. And now we're sort of sensitized to this idea that the news is going to tell us what's the threat or other people are going to tell us what's the threat. And instead of having those more sensory cues uh, to infection, we just have that information. And I think that information opens up a wide range of possible responses, some things that we wouldn't have historically have seen uh, before people had a better concept of things like germ theory. Yeah, that's that's interesting. You know, uh, in in the research, there are a number of different cues that people talk about as things that the behavioral immune system has uh, sort of evolved to use almost as proxies for a potential disease threat. Mm -hmm. uh, some of them are you know, things that are, you know, plausibly related to, uh, to real threats. And some of them are, are more just stereotypy. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. I, I mean, this idea, uh, resides in this fact that it's very difficult to truly detect disease or infectious disease in the world, right? So the agents themselves are essentially invisible, um, the various vectors that transmit the disease, sometimes they're visible, sometimes they're not. I mean, we'd be talking something like a mosquito to uh, the size of another person. And the symptoms that people exhibit from various diseases are tremendously variable, right? So um, the same disease might even show up differently in one person as compared to another person. And what that means, that amount of variation basically means that it's very difficult 
for processes like, like selection to target specific symptoms um, or specific cues in the environment. Instead, what you end up with is this whole host of sort of generalized uh, features that people become very responsive to. So for instance, um, it does turn out that uh, for the, the most of the diseases that are true dangers to people, it's something like 90 to 95% of those show up uh, in terms of symptoms in the face. So people pay a lot of attention to facial features of, other, of others. And, but like I said, there's not one specific cue that's associated with all diseases or even one disease. So what people do is they end up paying attention to features that suggest some signs of um, abnormality or possible disfigurement in the face, so asymmetries in the face. And those could come from a host of places, right? So they could come from infection, but they also could come from all sorts of things that people do throughout their lives, right? So you could have a scar on your face from uh, the time you fell down on the playground, or you could have certain kinds of, of wrinkles that happen as you age, or just various asymmetries that, that uh, occur naturally in the face. All of those have nothing to do. They don't suggest that you're any kind of disease threat. But when people are uh, concerned about disease, they start reacting to those kinds of features as though they signal a possible threat. And so you end up seeing more, um, essentially tr uh, the idea is that you end up seeing more people who are treated stereotypically or treated with sort of these negative attitudes, these prejudices, um, just as a function of these relatively uh, benign features that look a little bit different than we might expect normally. So if someone has, you know, uh, some sort of facial asymmetry or they're uh, yeah, somehow, I mean, I guess it's a little hard to even talk about because I was going to say they're somehow not attractive in, in a way, but in, in some ways I'm wondering if, if attractiveness is somehow related to this, right? That that's yeah. maybe a little bit of where those ideas may, or where some of those biases may have come from in the first place. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a, that's a great point. Um, attractiveness does seem to be connected to this idea. I mean, obviously I think it's, it's a little bit more broad than, than attractiveness per se. It's really about this physical appearance more generally. Um, and I think that the, what we tend to see is that it's uh, the people who are treated most negatively by others who are concerned about disease are those people that are different than the average um, and primarily different than the average in uh, more negative ways, so less attractive ways. Um, so what we find in terms of attractiveness itself is that in, at least there's some evidence that in places where people encounter more pathogens, so um, those could be places that are hotter and wetter, maybe near the equator where germs can, can breed and spread more easily. Um, people care more about the physical attractiveness of their relationship partners. And one possibility is that is that, that um, bias towards caring more about attractiveness is happening because attractiveness is uh, taken as this cue towards safety in other people, right? So this person looks more healthy. They look more symmetrical. Uh, and so because of that, it's not just that that cue is, is inherently attractive. It's that um, in, a, in a place or an environment where lots of people could be infected, that might signal some resistance to disease or that that person isn't currently infected. 
So that's one way that attractiveness plays out. There's some other interesting ways that I'm, I'm happy to talk about as well in terms of what people pay attention to with respect to themselves. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, so um, it's certainly the case that people uh, care about attractiveness in others uh, when concerned about disease, but we've been finding uh, in some, some relatively recent research that people also care about their own appearance um, to a much stronger degree when there is this concern around infectious disease um, in, their, in their minds. And so what people end up doing is they react as though their own appearance might be in question, that they might not seem as attractive or as safe to others. And so just think about the basic idea that if, um, when you're concerned about disease, if we know that you're paying attention to the appearance of other people, um, and everything I just talked about sort of suggests that, then it's also the case that individuals might say, hey, I'm paying attention to all these, uh, the attractiveness of all these people or the appearance of all these people. Um, maybe other people are doing the same thing to me. And in that sort of situation, it creates this kind of um, sense of a spotlight on the individual and the sense that other people are judging your physical appearance. So what do you do in a situation where other people might be skeptical about whether or not you have an infectious disease and, and judging that based on your appearance? Well, one thing you can do is adjust your appearance. Uh, and so one thing we uh, find is that people end up becoming more interested uh, when they're concerned about disease. They become more interested in various types of consumer products and behaviors that, that are designed to increase attractiveness, right? So thinking uh, about things like makeup or um, even things as extreme as plastic surgery or liposuction. Um, various kinds of ways in which people can uh, make their own appearance look more attractive to others. Now, this um, is interesting. Um, so is this anything that you've noticed recently? Because my intuition right now is at least in the early stages of COVID-19, I've seen a lot of people walking around outside in sweatpants and <laughs> not, yeah, sure. not necessarily... Um, maybe, I don't know if it's a different stage of things where uh, I guess my my guess might be that Coming up, maybe we'll see something like this a little more. But uh, right now, most of the people that I see outside look uh, more anxious and less uh, less attractive to me, I guess. <laughs> yes. So um, there might be some competing motivations here, right? So when people are concerned about disease, they're also less interested in sort of romantic behavior with other people. <laughs> right. So, okay. that, so, in that um, makes sense, yeah. Yeah. So there could be a perceiver bias there. But... Um, I, I think you're right that there's um, likely to be different stages of this process. So by by uh, attractiveness and, will, and interest in, in affecting your own appearance, that doesn't actually necessarily mean that the clothes that you wear are going to be that important. But it might mean that you want to, um, if we know that a lot of the features of disease show up in the face, it might mean that you really want to adjust what your face looks like in certain ways. Um, so... So far, uh, I don't think we have the data on this, but I would be really interested to see if over the progression of, um, of the COVID-19 uh, pandemic, at least in the U.S., whether it's the case that, that sales, not just of products related to hygiene and, and safety go up, but sales of things like related to appearance adjusting um, products, so makeup and so on. I love that. That's, that is a really interesting um, idea and definitely a count, I, I think, a counterintuitive claim too. So it's interesting to see how that 
plays out. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that would be really fascinating. I think that there's, you know, there's some things working against it in terms of the idea that if people really are uh, sheltering in place, then maybe there's just fewer people that they are paying attention to in terms of like um, that spotlight. So uh, they might not feel as observed uh, as, as in a less epidemic type of setting, uh, setting. But I think it would be really interesting to see. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. The, uh, the research, you know, a lot of this stuff, it sounds like the way that it's done is, you know, comparing situations where people are sort of activated with regards to uh, their behavioral immune system versus not activated or less activated. So sort of varying the degree of activation of how concerned you are at a given point uh, with potential disease. I think we're in a pretty extreme example of that right now, right? Yes, definitely. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think this is something that I've, I've talked with some other researchers about, but still sort of we're waiting to see what happens. I mean, there's so many projects that just got launched in the past few weeks um, looking at this kind of uh, these kinds of effects. But yeah, I mean, we have this really extreme situational cue to disease. And so it's a very top of mind threat in, in people's minds right now. And so it's almost that it's almost as though everybody has been primed to be uh, concerned about this. And so I think what one you know one possibility is that um, it might sealing out some of the effects we would normally find. Uh, and so thinking about how you design research projects and so on to address that, maybe instead of having a stand, you know, there is no standard control condition anymore. Let's say in an experiment, but instead what you're trying to do is make people feel safer in comparison to their natural state of, of uh, awareness around uh, COVID-19. So a lot of this is about calibrating to the right threat level, or, I mean, that's what we'd, in an ideal world, we'd like people to be able to calibrate to the right threat level. And I mean, that has something to do with the information that they're given and you want people to, you want people to respond appropriately, but not too strongly. So, I mean, what does this say about how people are receiving information from the media or from the government. Um, should people try to risk, do you think, I, I don't know if I want to ask you for advice on this, but do you think people should be trying to restrict their information somewhat so that they're not overreacting? You know, so if the right, you know, a scale of one to a hundred, if the right reaction to this is maybe an 80, you know, we want to see people move towards that mark, not go, you know, not perceive too much of a threat, but not too little of a threat. Um, how do you, how do you deal with the flood of information that, that, <laughs> that's coming in uh, and everybody's thinking about this right now? How do you, how do you, how do you get the real information and, um, and sort out what's not necessarily relevant? Yeah. I mean, it's a, it, it is definitely something that everybody is going through right now. What, what I would, what I would think is that, uh, incorrect information or, or, perceiving the, the threat level as too high is going to be a chronically stressful condition for people. Absolutely. And I mean, I think there's going to be a couple of possible responses, some of which we, we have seen, at least in terms of reporting on, on various people's behavior. So one is the, what you're saying, and that's the real amping up of this stress and what that does to people over over you know, that period of time when not only are they feeling stressed because of all this information about danger that's coming in, but they're also relatively isolated from other people 
Um, and we know that other people are a good source of stress relief, right? So the social connections that we have help us manage those kinds of responses. So um, many people, I think, are going to be at very increased risk for all the kinds of negative outcomes of stress that occur. I think also there's one even maybe more extreme response that we've seen, and that is for some people anyway, what they could do as a result of that information, the sort of uncertain, is it true, is it false information, and the stress associated with that is sort of go in the other direction. That is, start to act more complacent or um, almost as though they're feeling more invulnerable to things. And I think that's somewhat representative of some of the um, some of the behaviors that we've seen, maybe more, more in, in younger people uh, where they're continuing, at least prior to this sort of more top-down regulation of, of, uh, of behavior from the, from the government, uh, where people were just congregating in, in you know, parties and social settings and so on. Um, and if you read any of the news reports about these, it was people often saying things like, yeah, I just don't think it's that big a deal, or um, if I get it, it's fine, and so on. So it's this kind of almost complacent invulnerability response. And that certainly sounds like an, un, uh, an underestimation of the threat level yeah. And mal- maladaptive as well. <laughs> yeah. Maladaptive, maybe for them. Um, I mean, at the time, I think that probably many people thought that younger people were at less risk, um, whether or not that's true. I mean, I think we're getting some more conflicting information about that. But it did. It definitely would be increasing the risk for other people. So with the spread of the, of the interpersonal spread of the disease. Yeah, it's so interesting how that plays into the in-group, out-group issue. I mean, there's so many ways we could go with that discussion, but yeah. I, I think Actually, it's... I wanted to just say one more thing, kind of touching back on this point of the amount of information people are getting. Um, I mean, I think that here's, here's a hypothesis I have, and it's, you know, um, it's, I don't know how, how well grounded it is, but uh, people are getting all this information about this disease. And what I think it leads to is, as you said, this kind of stress response or just constant anxiety. So what do people, what do we know that people do when they are anxious? Well, one of those things they do is they look for immediate answers to their problem, right? So they tend to um, process information in a little bit more of a superficial manner. So they're taking in some of that, that information, but they're really looking for something that's going to tell them what either what to do or how to be safe or that everything is okay. And so these days, where do people turn for that information? Well, many people, they could be looking at the news, but a lot of people are looking at social media, right? And so social media is providing this constant stream of information and it's not all consistent, right? So people are getting information. It could be sometimes good information. It could be bad information, but it's often saying many different things. And so I think one uh, implication of that is that Uh, people are looking for answers and they're getting a lot of answers, but those answers aren't consistent. And so what I think that's going to do is simply increase the amount of anxiety that people are experiencing. So so one, I think one consequence of that, or one thing you might tell people to do who are um, trying to deal with this sort of avalanche of information is to honestly step back a little bit from their social media use. Uh, because that actually might be, although it seems like a source of comfort, and for many people it might be, it also could be increasing the level of stress that people are experiencing. That's always good advice, <laughs> but especially now, for sure. Yeah, no, that, that's that's really good advice. 
Yeah, I mean, in terms of just the flow of information, you know, it's it is interesting how people do kind of short circuit their thought process when they're in these high levels of anxiety. I mean, what are some of the other consequences of that? Do you think? Um, I mean, I think people are, so there's definitely this more shallow information processing. I think it also leads people to essentially follow their more heuristic kind of reactions to things. So, uh, essentially acting in a somewhat more, I mean, you could call it a more emotional manner or a less rational manner. So people aren't necessarily, uh, stopping as easily or as quickly to think about the why of their behavior, like what's driving it. Uh, and so you might see um, higher levels of all sorts of various um, threat responses, right? So people could become more frustrated more easily. That could potentially lead to increased aggression in certain situations. Um, and again, given that the type of information that we're getting isn't always consistent, that could actually have a real negative downside of uh, leading people to just be less trusting of any of the information that they're getting. And that could obviously create problems for creating, for um, trying to situate a, a community response to thing or a public health kind of message. And certainly with testing, it seems like that's a big topic there where the lack of availability of, of testing in the United States, especially is leading to this uncertainty about who is sick and who is not sick. And it feels like that is one of the things that's contributing to this high level of uncertainty and anxiety. Absolutely. I mean, it's, we're being told essentially. So again, we're still in that phase where most people aren't seeing um, in their daily lives. They're not seeing other people who are showing active signs of infection by and large. And so that essentially means that people are being told that, everybody is a potential danger. Everybody you encounter is a threat um, without being able to actually judge that uh, in, a, in a meaningful way for yourself. And so that's going to just create this sense that the almost that everyone uh, around you is, is a potential danger. And obviously that's going to really amp up the, the threat response. Gosh, yeah, and, and when you're uh, certainly walking outside, when you're, when you, it, you know, in my experience, um, Walking outside, people <laughs> avoid. People have been avoiding me by you know at least you know ten feet or so, and I guess you know that certainly feel. It certainly feels like there's an air air of paranoia out there where everybody must avoid everyone else by a pretty great distance. And you know, in a normal situation, how would that make you feel if everyone was avoiding you by ten feet? Pretty strangely, right? Right. I don't know if you're getting this where you are, but in, at least in Ann Arbor, I mean, the experience is a weird one because you're right. Everybody here is, is acting in a very, in a sort of suspicious way. Right. Right. Yeah. It would be really suspicious if it weren't for what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. So you get this level of suspicion and, and sort of aversion to others, but at the same time, at least in this community, people seem to be also uh, pairing that with this reaction, like we're all in it together. And so when you see all these people out on the street, walking, exercising, whatever it is, um, they're constantly trying to avoid everybody else. But at the same time, they're acting in really friendly ways. Um, well, so- maybe, it's, maybe that's just Michigan. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, you know, it's been pretty friendly here, too. I think people are pretty friendly in Rhode Island. And I do get that sense. I think you're, 
I, I do get that sense. There's almost this 9-11 sense of we're all in it together, which right. is interesting. And and this is something I thought about with um, what you've what you're talking about with in groups and out groups that maybe there are these two contradictory um, impulses here. One that we're all in this together. In other words, that our in group is all of humanity. And the other one that we need to protect ourselves from anyone who's outside of our immediate circle. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's, I think what that kind of weird pairing uh, presents is this, sort of cognitive conflict that people are experiencing. So um, some of the work on, uh, on disgust and disease threat suggests that there is a really opposing um, set of motivations that occur when, when disease threat is active versus the desire to affiliate with other people, to make friends and, and sort of um, reestablish connections with people and so forth. And those, those are, uh, have opposing dynamics. And so when one is strong, the other is weak. When one goes up, the other goes down. Here we have this situation where right. people are doing both. <laughs> right. There's so, I mean, how many, at least for me, how many times have you been outside and said, hey, good to see you. Don't come close to me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Nice to see you from across the street. Stay there. Yeah. So I wonder if there, have you noticed if there, or have you thought about if there are any people who may be hit particularly hard by this kind of um this kind of psychological um, um, things that are going on with COVID-19. And I, I guess I'm thinking someone with an existing predisposition to uh, stress or say OCD, you know, someone who's already may have some paranoia towards um, pathogens or something like that. Uh, do you think there are particularly vulnerable people in this situation? Yeah, I definitely do. And I think that there's probably... Um several different factors that would lead maybe different types of people to experience that vulnerability. So there are certainly these chronic individual differences in terms of how um, sensitive people are to, to disease threats. Um, and that could be just people who are just like have a heightened disgust response. It could be people that feel like they're more vulnerable to getting sick. Um, so you might think about people who have um, chronic condition, health conditions that might impact their immune functioning. Uh, those kinds of people, I think, are going to be much more um, aware of um, and stressed by the constant need to uh, be on guard uh, around these things. And so I think those are some of the people that are going to be especially concerned um, with, with this, kind of, um, this kind of information that we're getting. And I think there are also some additional kind of interesting um, social categories where we might expect people to be... Uh, to show more of a threat response. Yeah. One of the things that comes up in this, uh, and we've sort of touched on it lightly a couple of times is the, uh, but I feel like it, we, we would be remiss to, to, to sort of not directly discuss it is the in-group out-group issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in particular, I, I, this is something that is topical and in the news because of the way that, people in the government, uh, especially in executive branch of the government, are talking about uh, COVID-19 and the words that they're using uh, to to describe uh, the virus mm-hmm. and the way that that sort of plays on some of these fears of uh, that are escalated or enhanced by, by this uh, behavioral immune reaction. 
specifically thinking about this, you know, this term, uh, the Chinese virus, which I think is just, it's really disgusting to even, you know, say it out loud, but like, it feels like it's something that we should talk about because it is so relevant to, to the research here. Yeah. I mean, uh, I agree. I think that there very well might be some intentional language use around, uh, yeah, some of these ideas. I mean, so the question is if that is intentional, what is it really designed to do? Right. So, um, we do know, like like I was saying, that uh, when people are really actively concerned about disease or, or chronically concerned about it, um, they do tend to show these more these stronger in group out group uh, effects, more negativity towards towards other groups of people. Um, but they also tend to show these. So I mentioned that social norm issue. They also tend to show more um, tight knit connections with their own, within their own group. So they tend to show somewhat more conformity um, and adherence to those norms, right? If you're paying, if lots of people are paying attention to whether you're violating a norm, then of course you're going to want to not violate that norm. And so this language that's being used to exaggerate the, the group differences might actually, one possibility is that it's designed to um, really target not the other groups of people, not people who are Chinese and so forth, but really target the core audience that somebody who's using that language is, um, cares about. And by doing that, it's really designed to get them to kind of cohere and um, essentially, I mean, the extreme version of that would be to fall in line. So sort of a in-group dog whistle. Exactly. Um, yeah. I mean, just as an academic aside here, uh, how in the research do you differentiate the effects of something that you would consider like behavioral immune system activation versus just other generalized anxiety. I mean, a lot of these effects of, you know, increased, uh, you know, in-group, out-group, you know, behavior and stereotypy, uh, you know, more conformity, more what you might call conservatism uh, are things that would happen after, say, for example, you know, like, like 9-11 is a good example, right? That yeah, you right. saw all those same behaviors at that time as well. I mean, do you, how do you in the research differentiate that uh, from just you know generalized anxiety? Yeah, I mean that's that's a that's a great point, and um, it's certainly the case that this kind of response to uh, cues or threats of disease fits within the larger idea of how people manage threats and the threat various sort of generalized threat responses like anxiety that people experience. So uh, the ways uh, I would say there's sort of a, a conceptual version of this and an empirical version. So empirically, what people will sometimes do, not probably often enough, honestly, but what sometimes people will do is when they design a study, they'll try to contrast uh, different types of threat responses. So you might think about if, it's, if, it, if you're trying to activate um, a concern around disease, then you might also contra- contrast that with activation of a different kind of a threat cue. So um, we've done this with respect to uh, physical accidents, um, economic threats, uh, threat of um, sort of interpersonal theft, and so different things that should also create anxiety, but maybe the uh, response that we would consider to be functional from the point of view of behavioral immune system wouldn't necessarily align with the response you would expect to see for those other threats. So. Um, I think that's the empirical version of how people who are doing the research tend to tend to do this. 
Um, conceptually, though, I think that we could make the case, sort of building off of the findings in this literature, that there are at least three big categories of response uh, or sensitivity that people have that could be used to distinguish uh, responses that are disease specific to diseases to responses that are tied to other types of threats um, or more general anxieties. And so the, those, uh, at least the ones we've been exploring, uh, those categories are uh, one is a prior contact. So people who are concerned about disease do seem to have this uh, belief, and it's it makes sense from the perspective of germ theory, but I think it goes well beyond germ theory. This idea that things that other people have touched now become dangerous. And those uh, that response doesn't align with a lot of other threats uh, that we should that we could um, investigate, right? So there's this issue of prior contact, which I think it has some threat specificity to it. Uh, there's this uh, additional issue of familiarity. So people become very sensitized to, concerned with, and uh, reactive to uh, cues of familiarity, right? So who's like you, who's not like you? Who do you recognize? Who don't you recognize? Um, even to the extent, not of just in people, but for instance, food. So people who are concerned about disease um, become much more avoidant and adverse to uh, foreign cuisines, right? And um, not only that, they're not just becoming more avoidant generally, they actually show an increased approach response to uh, familiar foods, things they've eaten before. Um, and so they got this, this category of familiarity that really ties in to disease threat. And the third category is um, a sensitivity to, I'll just call it irregularity, um, but it kind of goes back to the, what we were talking about earlier with respect to, let's say, facial cues of abnormality or disfigurement or so forth. People are, are um, more reactive to those physical features that suggest something is a little bit off. And um, so those are the three things that I think stand out in terms of the work in this literature that help to differentiate it from other types of more um, generalized threat responses. Oh, interesting. Okay, that's that's really helpful to understand how this works. Um, I guess the question that I have too is: to what extent is a lot of this related to associations between um, certain cues and illness that are learned over the course of a lifetime? Because certainly in psychology, we know that taste aversion. So you know, a, a taste of some kind of flavored water that that later leads to illness is something that animals pick up on really quickly and, um, you know, forms a really fast association because of course you can be dead if you, if you poison yourself. So, um, so yeah, the idea of this, I guess it harkens back to this idea of like preparedness to learn specific types of associations between things. So, um, yeah, so if you, you know, eat a food that makes you sick, then you're going to avoid that specific food or certain qualities of that food uh, in the future. Um, with respect to non-food based learning, um, I, I think that we, I'm trying to think of whether or not we actually have good information on this uh, in terms of thinking about development. Um, 
nothing in particular is coming to mind, but I think it makes a lot of sense that the that a person who has experienced a certain type of disease, whether it's in themselves or in close others, um, are going to uh, sort of prioritize those kinds of cues in terms of um, what they look for and the potential threats that exist out there in, in the world. In your review article, you talk about uh, sickness behaviors. So, so the kinds of behaviors that people exhibit once they're sick um, that are that are not necessarily immune reactions, but um, specific kinds of things to protect themselves from, you know, further danger. Um, one, I guess, one example of this is uh, hyperalgesia that mm-hmm. um, that you you have an increased sensitivity to pain after, you know, if you have a bodily illness, and that's something that has an adaptive function in that when you're more sensitive to pain, you'll you know you'll crawl underneath your covers and try to avoid everyone else for a couple days. Um, so yeah, I just wondering what your thoughts are about that. Yeah. I mean, so sickness behavior, I think is this, um, it's sort of, again, a suite of behaviors that's presumably, uh, designed to, uh, help reduce, uh, energy expenditure in people. So if you're currently sick and your physiological immune system is in high gear, then it takes a lot of energy and a lot of calories to, um, to ramp that up and keep it going and, and hopefully minimize the collateral damage that's going on with that immune system response. And so one of the ways people do that is by essentially shutting down the unnecessary activities that they, um, that they might otherwise engage in. And one, the best way to do that uh, in terms of your brain convincing to do that is by making you feel bad. Um, and so, um, yeah, so people sort of staying in bed uh, and uh, attempting to conserve the, the calories that they have in order to, to fight off those illnesses. So I think that that's kind of the, proto- the sickness behavior is kind of the prototypical version of uh, this behavioral set of, of responses that happens once people are sick. I mean, it's, I don't know if I'd count this as like a dirty little secret of work in pathogen avoidance psychology or behavioral immune system work, but it's typically not done with people who are actively sick. Um, so it's really thinking about this idea, and it's not really a secret because the whole idea of the behavioral immune system is to ward off initial infection. But there's this really unresolved set of questions, I think, where um, what happens to those behavioral strategies once people are actually infected by, by something? Um, are they are they still showing those same kinds of biases that they might show prior to illness? Or does this sickness behavior kind of overwhelm those and really just shut people down altogether? Yeah. Well, I mean, maybe that's a good uh, segue into asking uh, like a final question, which would be, uh, you know, where do you see this research going? Uh, and, you know, I guess given that it's so, such a topical thing right now, how do you yeah. see the uh, impact of, of the coronavirus, uh, you know, on the research? So I, I almost can't answer because there are so many directions that we could potentially take this in. I mean, I think that the, the answers that we have so far are in these basic um, individualized responses uh, to when, you know, when people are, are concerned about disease, but there's all sorts of interesting, broader questions that could be, addre- um, could be uh, at least given some insight through understanding how this, these processes work. So um, here's a couple of possibilities. So we could think, well, one is we could turn internally. So there's this big question about um, how do this 
behavioral set of strategies, these behavioral immune strategies that people show, how do they interface with the physiological immune system, if at all, right? So is it the case that if I become really actively concerned about disease, does that um, somehow change my immune functioning and vice versa? So if my immune functioning is ramping up or, or um, becoming depressed, uh, does that change how I start behaviorally reacting? And there's been some initial work on this, um, but I think it's, um, it's, it's difficult stuff to do. And so um, I think there's a lot of um, questions that, that uh, are currently in play with respect to this and maybe uh, some tracking of people as they progress, let's say people who actually become infected from COVID-19, um, tracking you know, various sorts of psycho uh, psychological responses would give us some insight to that. So we could turn internally, but I think um, probably one of the more um, wide-ranging uh, sort of applications of this, these ideas is to turn uh, towards society more broadly. And so, for instance, there's this interesting body of work within this field that suggests that um, political attitudes and behavior are affected by these disease concerns. And so sort of really nicely linking up with what I was saying earlier about this um, increased attention to your in-group, what your in-group is doing, the norms people are following, are they violating them, the increased conformity, all of that together uh, culminates in terms of uh, political attitudes and behavior with the idea that people will um, show an increased desire to maintain the status quo and that they might also be a, become a little bit more open to conservative thinking. So if the idea is that uh, more conservative thinking is trying to maintain current norms. Uh, and so what we, what we see in that literature is that people who are you know, actively concerned about disease or just who live in places where there's more disease happening um, tend to show more conservative attitude. They express more conservative attitudes there's some evidence of increased voting behavior for more in, um, conservative politicians or incumbent politicians. Uh, and so I think there's a lot in there that's going to be interesting with respect to how um, sort of political behavior progresses during this epidemic, because we have not, in, not just that, we have all this, these situations of, well, what happens when people are um, interested in voting for various political candidates, but now they have to navigate these social environments where other people might be, let's say at the voting booth. What do people do? Do they just avoid voting altogether? Do they take alternate strategies? And so I think that there's a number of sort of like, at least in that area of uh, sort of societal implications, I think there'll be some very interesting work coming out. Um, really appreciate you joining us on the show to talk about this stuff. This is incredibly informative. Um, so Josh Ackerman, again, thanks a lot. Yeah, thanks, Josh. That's a really fascinating conversation. Yeah, happy to do. And uh, take care and stay healthy. Same to you both. Hope you enjoyed the show. You can get a hold of us on Twitter at NationCog, on Facebook, or you can email us at cognationpodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you.